Hello and welcome to HIV, You and Me, Public Health and Biology. This is your host, Ruby Sigmund. And while I will get into more complicated and complex topics within the bounds of HIV, for now, let's start with the basics. HIV is a virus that can only spread through blood, semen, or vaginal fluids. Please remember this. Contrary to popular belief, it cannot spread through sneezing, coughing, saliva, etc. That's because there's not enough viral DNA within these substances to actually transmit the disease. That's why it's called a sexually transmitted disease. However, please do not mistake it for an STD because its effects are much more dangerous to the immune system. HIV, once severely damaging the immune system, can turn into AIDS. AIDS is a disease that only occurs when your CD4 cell count, which are cells in your immune system that fight off infection and disease, is low enough that you essentially can't fight off HIV anymore, and it turns into something larger and more dangerous, even deadly. Now, you might be wondering, well, how does HIV actually get into the body and start to spread? HIV enters the body, as I said, through blood or genital fluids. Imagine a ball with sharp spikes on the outside. This is an HIV cell. The spikes are glycoproteins 120 and 41, which bind to spikes on the CD4 cell, called CD4 cell receptors. The tighter the binding of these glycoproteins to the CD4 cell receptors, the less virus is needed to infect the body. The binding depends on the type and strain of HIV the patient has contracted. There are two strains, four groups, and 12 types. A lot, I know. However, we will be focusing on the most common and infectious strain, HIV-1, and the most common group, group M. Within group M, there are nine major types, A, B, C, D, F, G, H, J, and K. B is the most common type in the US and Europe, while worldwide, the most common HIV type is type C. This is an important distinction because most of the research on HIV has been done in first world countries, where type B is most prevalent. So in resource limited settings, which are settings where there's less access to funds for healthcare and other vital resources in the medical community, there's less research on the most prevalent type, type C, and also more risk of infection. Now let's get back to that HIV cell. The HIV cell will officially bind with the CD4 cell through the envelope of the HIV molecule, essentially the outside layer of the HIV molecule, which will then interact with the CD4 proteins on the outside of the CD4 cell. Now, for HIV to take over the CD4 cell, it needs to turn its viral RNA into viral DNA suitable for the human body. HIV does this by expelling its RNA into the CD4 cell, along with an enzyme called reverse transcriptase which catalyzes or speeds up the transcription of RNA into DNA by adding DNA nucleotides A, C, T, and G onto the three end of the tRNA primer. Now, that all sounds pretty complicated, so let's break it down. Essentially, nucleotides are the building blocks of DNA, just like amino acids, except nucleotides actually make up amino acids as well. When talking about the three prime end, I'm talking about one side of the DNA. In DNA, there's a three prime end and a five prime end. So when any reverse transcriptase enzyme copies a strain of DNA, it'll copy it the complementary or the opposite way. For example, the complementary nucleotide is A to T and the other complementary nucleotide pair is C to G. 
while a complementary strand is three prime to five prime versus five prime to three prime. So if reverse transcriptase is copying a strand of DNA that goes from three prime to five prime, the complementary DNA will go from five prime to three prime instead. Once reverse transcriptase is used to jumpstart the transcription, DNA polymerase, which is an enzyme used to create a polymer to synthesize the DNA strand that is also used in the human body, creates a DNA strand complementary to the uh, HIV RNA strand and starts the process. RNase H is then used to break apart the RNA from the newly created viral DNA strand. RNase H is a ribonuclease, which is a singular nuclease that divides up nucleotides into smaller sections. Therefore, RNase H can break up RNA using hydrolysis, which is the chemical breakdown of a compound using water. So RNase H uses the water to break apart the hydrogen bonds between the nucleotides of RNA that's holding the RNA together. After that, DNA polymerase synthesizes a complementary DNA strand from the newly created viral DNA. And subsequently, RNase-H removes the RNA from that strand. These steps are happening at the same time, with DNA polymerase jumping from strand to strand. This leads to recombination, which is an exchange of genetic material between two organisms that lead to a combination of those traits. This accounts for mutations, and these mutations lead to the different types of HIV we see today. The next step is for HIV to secrete integrase, which is a retrovirus enzyme, meaning an enzyme that only occurs within viruses. This enzyme catalyzes the insertion of viral HIV DNA into the CD4 cells. HIV then uses the CD4 cells to make HIV proteins that encode for the HIV virus. It does this through something called the GAG gene, which is a gene that encodes for the building blocks of the viral core, which is like the nucleus of an HIV molecule. These building blocks are protein 24, which forms the protective shell around the viral core, protein 17, which helps to hold glycoproteins 120 and 41 together with the envelope of the HIV molecule, protein 9, which binds to the RNA in each of the molecules in order to keep it inside the viral core, and protein 6, a protein that is essential in viral protein R being encoded into new molecules. Now you might be wondering, what's viral protein R? Why is it so important? Well, viral protein R is a protein that forces used infected CD4 cells into apoptosis. Apoptosis is when a cell kills itself because it's no longer functioning correctly. Now, HIV wants to kill off these CD4 cells so that it doesn't have to fight off these immune cells and effectively can destroy the immune system. Viral protein R also induces reverse transcription, which is the enzyme that we were talking about at the beginning of the HIV process that catalyzes viral RNA from the HIV into suitable viral DNA into the CD4 cell. Then, the building block proteins I was just talking about, proteins 24, 17, 9, and 6, and the HIV RNA are moved to the surface of the cell. This means that the CD4 cell has become an immature HIV molecule. 
it's immature because the HIV protein strands are not contained inside of the viral core. So the HIV envelope, essentially the outside of the cell, is not able to function correctly because the HIV RNA is loose and virtually unprotected inside of the molecule, which could lead to mutations or even destruction of the viral material needed for proliferation, which is the copying of the HIV molecule, essential to the spread of HIV. So the immature HIV molecule pushes itself out of its host cell and releases protease, which is an enzyme that breaks down proteins into smaller pieces in order to put it into the viral core and form the HIV mature molecule. Therefore, protease is essential to the infection and spread of HIV. Now that you know how the process of HIV works, let's look at different types of drugs that work to stop HIV from copying itself all across the human body's immune system. First up, we have NRTIs, nucleotide reverse transcriptase inhibitors. That's a mouthful, right? Well, these were the first drugs allowed to treat HIV. What they do is inhibit or block the reverse transcriptase enzyme we were talking about before by containing mutated non-functional nucleotides. Non-functional nucleotides contain no genetic information. So instead of the reverse transcriptase using HIV nucleotides in its process of transcription, it uses the non-functional nucleotides. And that causes problems in the transcription of viral RNA to viral DNA because there's no genetic information to actually turn the RNA into DNA. Next, we have its brother drug, non-nucleotide reverse transcriptase inhibitors. These two drugs are often used together in order for the drug regimen or the plan of the drugs to be most effective on reverse transcriptase. This drug stops reverse transcriptase entirely from producing any HIV DNA by binding directly to it. These two drugs are usually the first to be used in an antiretroviral treatment, which is basically a treatment that tries to prevent HIV from becoming worse by lowering the amount of virus in the body. If these don't work effectively or they've been used for a while, the second regimen drugs are introduced, which includes protease, integrase, and function inhibitors. Protease inhibitors involve the enzyme protein that I was talking about before, which breaks down proteins in immature HIV to form mature HIV. What protease inhibitors do is they bind to protease at its binding site, blocking protease from functioning correctly because HIV proteins won't be able to bind at that same binding site in order to be cut. Protease inhibitors are most often used with other antiretroviral drugs because at this point, the HIV is already at the immature HIV molecule stage and you wanna to try to prevent HIV from successfully entering this stage because it's basically already formed. Next up, integrase inhibitors which bind to integrase the enzyme that catalyzes the insertion of HIV DNA into the CD4 cell nucleus in order to keep it in place. So that means integrase can't catalyze the insertion of viral DNA because it can't actually bind to the DNA in order to tell it to go into the cell nucleus. The less integration of viral HIV DNA into the CD4 cell means that there's less cell apoptosis, and the less cell apoptosis, the more the immune system can fight back against the HIV virus. Finally, Let's talk about fusion inhibitors. This goes all the way back to the beginning of the HIV process because these inhibitors bind to the HIV envelope on the CD4 cell surface. They bind to the glycoproteins 120 and 41 to block their ability to bind to the CD4 cell receptors. Now, these inhibitors are still in their earliest phases and that's why they're used the least amount, but they may be promisingly effective. All right, let's get into some problems with antiretroviral drugs. The main issue with these drugs is the drug-resistant mutations that occur as a result of them within the HIV. These mutations occur for a multitude of reasons. 
Number one, <laughs> reverse transcriptase has no process of checking itself during the synthesization of HIV RNA into HIV DNA. That means that mutations can occur and reverse transcriptase will not go back and fix the genetic material, as opposed to in our own human somatic, aka body, cells, in which we have lots of checkpoints that are there to make sure that no mutations or anything else wrong with the cells occurs while the cells are synthesizing DNA. Number two, rapid replication of the HIV virus plus the shorter lifespan of HIV molecules means that the mutated or drug-resistant HIV molecules make up a large amount of the infection very quickly. This is because there are over 1 trillion new HIV molecules produced a day, and HIV molecules only last for four days. Therefore, if there's one molecule that has a drug-resistant gene, it can spread very, very quickly. Finally, when HIV RNA turns into HIV DNA, DNA polymerase that jumps from strand to strand leads to recombination, as I explained before. Because of this genetic recombination, several subtypes and sequences within the subtypes occur. There's 25 to 35% variation between groups and 15 to 20% variation within types, creating sequences within subtypes such as B1 or B2. That means it's even harder to standardize antiretroviral drugs because so many different HIV types are unique based on the individual. Let's take a look at some of these drug-resistant mutations in HIV. To preface this section, I want to say that the subtype that you have really matters when looking at mutations. I'll give you an example. Neverapine, which is a mother-to-child HIV transmission prevention NNRTI, the second kind of drug I talked about today, causes HIV drug resistance in both the mother and, through breastfeeding, the child. 70% of mothers with subtype C developed drug resistance to neverapine after only one dose. However, in subtype D, only 36% developed drug resistance after one dose, and the percentage continued to decrease after that with each subtype. This shows that subtype really matters. However, subtype can also be a positive indicator because different subtypes are more susceptible to different antiretroviral drugs. This is why there are mutations in sub-subtypes, but those mutations do not appear in others. One of the most common mutations out there for HIV is K65R, which appears with NRTIs. The first drug I talk about. Now, you may come across these drug-resistant mutations and wonder what all of these letters and numbers stand for. I'm here to break it down for you. The K stands for lysine, 65 as in codon 65, and R as in arginine. K65R means that arginine was produced instead of lysine at codon 65 as a result of a nucleotide mutation. Instead of AAA, AGA was produced. Nucleotides have different shapes, so the viral DNA is misaligned with a G instead of an A. Therefore, the NRTI can't effectively place non-functional nucleotides in the DNA sequence because it doesn't know where to place them correctly. K65R has high level resistance. Studies show that K65R is not selected with AZT, the oldest and original NRTI, and with TAMS, which are a group of mutations that scientists have discovered have a different mechanism of resistance than K65R. TAMS have an excision mechanism, which cuts off or changes the nucleotides which the NRTI is supposed to bind to, while K65R has a discriminatory mechanism, which alters the incorporation of nucleotides into the viral DNA. This means that there are antagonistic pathways of resistance because their methods cancel each other out. 
Therefore, they're not beneficial for HIV to select together. In fact, studies show that when K65R and TAMS are interacting with AZT together, K65R actually decreases TAMS resistance to AZT. On the other hand, TAMS also antagonizes K65R resistance to other NRTIs such as ABC, TDF, and DDC. Cool names, right? <laughs> so TAMS decreases the rate of resistance that K65R has to these NRTIs. Therefore, HIV doesn't want these mutations to go together. But what mutations do work well together? Well, let's bring in another type of mutation. Introducing M184V, or valine instead of methanonine at codon 184. M184 has a positive association to K65R because they both use the discriminatory mechanism of resistance. They act as a tag team, decreasing both the affinity, or the ability to bond, and the catalytic rate, or the speed at which NRTI works, of NRTIs. Therefore, it's advantageous for HIV to select both of these mutations together. Subsequently, TAMs have a negative association not only to K65R, but to M184V, because they both counteract the ability of TAMs to unblock the reverse transcriptase primer, which is how TAMs act as mutations in order to help HIV beat the antiretrovirals. Think of it as a video game, with the mutations acting as mini-bosses, that help out the main HIV boss in defeating the superheroes trying to stop HIV. All in all, how mutations interact with each other is extremely important to the biology of HIV. But we also have to understand how the social and public health side of HIV work together in order to understand its true effect on, in America and across the globe. Let's take a look at the effect of resource-limited settings on drug-resistance mutations. A refresher on resource-limited settings. They are areas in which there's a lack of funds to cover healthcare costs, leading to limited access to medical resources. Living in these settings causes a vast difference in treatment versus living in a non-resource-limited setting. Usually, resource-limited settings are rural because in rural regions, HIV-positive patients are typically poor and have to travel much farther distances in order to reach clinics that supply the antiretroviral drugs that are needed to survive. These clinics often have shortages of antiretrovirals due to poor supply chain management by their governments, as shown in one African study where 40% of clinics monitored had antiretroviral shortages. In resource-limited settings, not only is access to antiretrovirals limited, but the stigma associated with being HIV-positive from a lack of education about the virus discourages people, especially women, from seeking treatment, while also causing an increase of HIV transmission. Overall, the stigma encompassing these communities leads to lower rates of patient retention, with a 20% loss of patient follow-up. In another study in Africa, patients living in resource-limited settings received treatment based on National WHO, or World Health Organization, guidelines. Because they only have the resources to follow these standardized guidelines, many HIV-positive people living in these settings are unable to get individually tailored treatment or viral load monitoring to improve their chances of having a suppressed viral load. A suppressed viral load essentially means that even if you have sex, 
You can't spread the HIV virus to another human being because there's not enough of the viral DNA in your body to spread it. However, this is not a free pass to not practice safe sex. Please, please, please protect yourself. In an East African study, patients who had no viral load monitoring accumulated one TAM every 15 months in low-income settings versus every 4.3 years in high-income settings when continuing antiretroviral therapy after virological failure. Virological failure occurs when the antiretroviral therapy fails to suppress and sustain a person's viral load to less than 200 copies per microliter. Essentially, this means that the antiretroviral medication isn't working and the HIV is getting worse rather than better. This is oftentimes due to the drug resistance mutations. Another factor that shows that resource-limited settings produce high rates of drug resistance is the duration and widespread use of antiretroviral therapy. More mutations occur even when the same drugs are used consistently because testing for resistance to the drugs isn't done in these settings, resulting in transmission of drug-resistant types of HIV. An example of this occurred in Botswana, South Africa, in which 87% of HIV-positive adults used antiretroviral therapy and 30%, a huge number of that population, had the K65R mutation. Another example was in Limpopo, South Africa, where patients who had been on antiretroviral therapy for more than five years were more likely to have more than two drug-resistant mutations. Additionally, 57% of patients who failed antiretroviral therapy in a multi-region study have been on ART or antiretroviral therapy for more than three years compared to only 9% of patients who failed antiretroviral therapy that had been on antiretroviral therapy for less than a year. However, in China and Thailand, which are countries that are considered to be upper middle income, not resource-limited settings, the drug resistance rate was consistently low at 2.6% and 0.5% respectively, even when using antiretroviral therapy. This is because antiretroviral therapy is not used as long as, for as long of durations because these countries don't rely on national guidelines. Instead, patients have the ability to get tailored treatments to their specific type of HIV. Let's take a look at viral load and CD4 count, two factors that also significantly impact drug resistance in resource-limited settings. In a multi-region study of resource-limited settings, if a patient had more than 100,000 copies of viral load per microliter, it resulted in a median amount of five drug-resistant mutations. Versus in patients with a viral load ranging from 10,000 to 100,000 copies per microliter, which had three mutations, and in patients with a viral load of less than 10,000 copies per microliter, which had two drug resistance mutations on average. Viral load monitoring is also crucial to the prevention of accumulation of HIV drug resistant mutations and in reaching an undetectable viral load, which is a viral load count of HIV in the patient's body that is too low to transmit to others. As I said before, when viral load monitoring is not available, more viral load accumulates and CD4 cell counts decrease. This is not okay. In another multiple region study consisting of five regions, the University of Witzwaterland HIV CRS in South Africa had the most frequent viral load monitoring and reported the most susceptibility to NRTI, the antiretroviral drug from the beginning of this episode. In a South African study, delayed viral load testing every six months led to 86% of patients having at least one drug-resistant mutation while switching to a different antiretroviral regimen. 
When viral load becomes significantly increased, virological failure occurs, and this is not what you want to happen. When this happens, you have to switch to an entirely different drug regimen in order for the possibility of your immune system responding to the therapy to occur. And in resource-limited settings, it's so difficult to find new drugs and find a tailored treatment. You're more likely to just develop mutations and end up developing AIDS than you are to get on a regimen that works for your genealogy. Unfortunately, with viral load and virological failure monitoring, monitoring, the amount of CD4 cells or immune system cells a patient has is also strongly associated with the amount of drug resistance they have. Normal CD4 cell counts are 500 to 1,500 cells per microliter. Having a CD4 cell count below 250 is considered dangerous and a serious sign of damage to the immune system. Having a CD4 cell count of less than 200 cells per microliter is associated with a high drug resistance rate because the presence of fewer CD4 cells means the immune system has become weaker and has a harder time attacking the HIV virus. Higher drug resistance is almost always coupled with lower CD4 counts. In a multiple region study of resource limited settings, patients with less than 250 CD4 cells per microliter had a median amount of four drug resistant mutations, as opposed to participants with a CD4 cell count of 250 to 500 plus microliters, where the median amount of drug resistant mutations was only two. This shows the importance of CD4 cell counts being higher and viral load being lower in order for the effectiveness of antiretroviral drugs to work. Now that you have all the information, here are my recommendations. Because having increased resistance leads to higher transmission of HIV-resistant drug types, HIV is harder to treat in resource-limited settings by continually having to switch antiretroviral regimens and because patients have drug resistance even before taking antiretrovirals thereby making antiretroviral therapy less effective and more expensive. A much more cost-effective option for prevention of increased drug resistance is to enforce monitoring viral load and genotyping earlier on in antiretroviral therapy. This is because these two protocols together will allow for patients to start on the correct antiviral regimen from the very beginning. They cause drug resistance to have less of an impact on the effectiveness of the treatment because you could choose specific antiretrovirals the strain of HIV you have isn't as resistant to. Another widely agreed upon strategy is creating more data on resource limited setting subtypes through surveys and studies. This is also more effective from a cost perspective than allowing HIV types in resource limited settings to continue causing more complex drug resistance. By compiling more data on subtype C, scientists can better understand the interactions between antiretrovirals and subtype C strains of HIV, allowing for more effective regimens that have a lower chance of developing or increasing levels of drug resistance. Many factors which cause increased drug resistance in resource-limited settings are rooted in the public health approach of the governments in these areas. A way to develop and implement better medical systems to create a more structured and resistance-specific plan would be to use funding models, which show outcomes of different strategies of HIV prevention. These can justify the allocation of necessary funds for methods of HIV prevention that are proven to decrease infections and be cost-effective, as opposed to theoretical ones. Overall, the limitations of resource-limited settings, including relying on WHO guidelines, or supply chains leading to antiretroviral shortages, a stigmatized social culture that looks down upon and isolates HIV-positive people, and having less research on subtypes leads to an increased prevalence of drug-resistance mutations.
there's a clear correlation between these resource-limited settings and the prevalence and level of drug resistance. In order to prevent the detrimental effects of increased resistance to antiretrovirals, the governments of these countries need to take steps to change their public health approach so that the protocols and methods which are supposed to quell the spread of drug resistance throughout resource-limited settings become simplified, standardized, and ultimately successful. That was my very broad and very long overview of HIV. Now, it concerns to the rest of the podcast. There needs to be education of public health strategies and crises across the globe in order for people like me to understand how our privileged perspective impacts others who are suffering and how we can help them. It's not just in resource-limited settings that people with HIV are suffering. In America's healthcare system, criminal justice system, education system, housing, family, literally every aspect of society, there's some portion of society and culture that ostracizes people with HIV and creates internalized homophobia, suicide ideation, and increased risk of mental and substance abuse disorders. We have to do better, not only in our separate communities, but throughout America as a whole. Although we are polarized, and although our president may not agree with our views, we can stand together and unite like we are against the coronavirus currently against the adverse effects of HIV, not just physically, but mentally, socially, and emotionally. In the next episode, I will be going into the healthcare side of HIV and the stigma present with primary care providers, the LGBT community, and ethnicity, race, and community-based interventions. Thank you for listening. This has been HIV, You and Me, Public Health and Biology.